Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast following a frustrating doubleheader split with the New York Mets on Monday night. I'm your host, Anthony Sanfilippo, at AntSanPhilly on Twitter, joined, as always, by Crossing Broad Phillies writer Bob Wankel at BW Crossing Broad. Bob, uh, it's, it's funny that you know we're sitting here with a team with 50 wins. They didn't have their 50th win last year until August 31st. It's July 9th when we're recording this, and they have 50 wins. So that's, uh, that's an incredible feat. Uh, they, they are tied, deadlocked, for, for, tied for first place with the Atlanta Braves. And we sit here tonight as a couple of Phillies guys just kind of frustrated with, with where things are. And it's, it's crazy to think that because they are what, 11 games over 500 or 12 games over 500, I'm sorry. Um, and they're just, they're just a – there are things that happen every game, game in, game out. And we sit here and bang our heads on the table like, why? Why is this like this? They should be better than this. And they're they're in first place. It's crazy. It's a crazy time, but it's but it's good. It's it's also good that we're that we get a little fired up about it um, because it matters now again, and that's a good thing. It absolutely matters. I was uh, ready to rip my hair out in game one tonight. Seventh inning, you have a guy on second base, nobody out, you don't score him. Golden opportunity to score in the eighth inning, you don't get it done. The tenth inning, first and second, nobody out, they don't score. Then you get walked off by Wilmer Flores against a terrible, terrible Mets team that was 3-17 and at City Field over their last 20 games. This Mets team is terrible, and the way that you, you structured this, this doubleheader, you, you sent your two best guys out, uh, the, the way that Zach Eflin and Aaron Nola have been throwing lately, you went out to try to win this doubleheader and then and probably split the next two games, and you wanted to make a statement today and kind of punch them in the mouth, and you weren't able to do it because of just a, one of the worst losses I thought of the season really in game one today, and, and credit to Aaron Nola for what he did in game two, comes back seven innings strong, uh, Tommy Hunter certainly made it interesting in the ninth before Victor Arano got out of it. And, and you walk away from it, like you said, 50-39. and 39, You're tied with the Braves, same record. Five-and-a-half game lead over the Washington Nationals as we speak right now. And, and you have to feel good about the big picture. But when you watch this team day in, day out, and I don't think that that's something that a lot of people have done, to be honest with you. I right. think a lot of us are, are joining now here around the 4th of July and just saying, well, what's the fuss all about? And you go, well, they're winning. I mean, how, how upset could you be? But when you watch this product day in, day out, <laughs> there are some concerns, and it is very easy to be frustrated with what we're seeing here. And, and I think that's a very good point that you make. And, and I think it's something that, that really should be – we need to reiterate a little bit. I mean, we sit here we'd, and we watch – Pretty much every game, you know, miss one here and there or whatever. But we pretty much, pretty much watch every Phillies game start to finish, and then because we have to talk about it every week, and I, I get the sense that because we do that, we tend to be, you know, obviously we have the the microscope out, and the, and the spotlight is a little bit harsher from our perspective than with than most people. And I think people might get frustrated saying, well, how can you complain? How can you complain? They're in first place. They got 50 wins. Da, 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 da. No one expected this. And everybody's right. Everybody's right. But you can't, you can't just blindly be casual about this. You got to understand that there, there are warning signs that you see when you watch game in and game out. 
like we talked about at the beginning of the season in in April, you know, the bullpen looked good, but we saw some things like, yeah, this bullpen might not, not might not last very long, and then it went right in the toilet. Yeah, right? It's one of the worst in all of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> right. So like there were there are things when you watch every game that you see and say, yeah, boy, it's smoke and mirrors that they're winning win, winning with right now. If they don't get lights out starting pitching, they're, they, they have a much higher chance of losing the game if their starter doesn't go you know, bonkers, give you a quality start and, and really keep you in it until the seventh, eighth inning. If they don't do that, the Phillies' chances of winning are less than 50%, I would and, say. And we talked about it before the show tonight. It wasn't that the Phillies didn't hit in the seventh, eighth, or tenth tonight. It's not that they didn't do that because they don't do that. They haven't really done that all year, to be honest with you. It's not that Victor Arano gave up a home run to Wilmer Flores in the 10th inning. That's not why they lost the game. You know why they lost the game? And this is completely unfair. It's that Zach Eflin didn't give the Phillies the type of start that he had the previous six times through the rotation. Right. If Zach Eflin gave him that six, seven inning start with one, two earned runs, the Phillies win that game because that's the type of game that the Phillies win all year. You know, I mean, but because you don't get that that B-plus to A-level starting pitching, you don't win that game. And that's completely ridiculous, and it's totally unfair to this rotation, but that has ha- that's, really, that's really how they've arrived at this point here in first place as we talk on you know, July 9th. And, and I'm going to give you a homework assignment for next week, Bob. Uh, because I, I, and I know you, knowing you, you're going to sit here and stay up all night tonight and figure this out because I know how you are, right? But this is, a, this is a good homework assignment for our next podcast for next week. I'm going to venture to guess, and this is just me, and I don't have any clue, any hint of this. No, I didn't hear a stat on this anywhere. This is just something that has formulated in my head in the moment, okay? I, I would venture to guess, and either we could look at it in one of two ways, either that in games that the Phillies starting pitching has given them a quality start versus a game that they have not given them a quality start, how disparate is the record and how does that compare to the rest of baseball? Or, uh, because there have been a number of games when, when Gabe takes the starter out after five innings, let's just say in a game where the starter gives up three runs or less. And I know that sounds stupid to just say, well, of course, if the starter only gives up three runs or less, your chances of winning are better. It's not just that. What I'm, what I'm trying to point out is is that, yeah, most teams are going to probably have better records in that, in, in that situation, but I'm, I'm betting that the Phillies' record versus their record when, it's not, when the starting pitcher doesn't give them a good start is more disparate than any other team or at least any other contending team in, in Major League Baseball. And we can look that up, and I, I guarantee you that you're right. I mean, very, very infrequently this year have the Phillies hit their way beyond a mediocre or below-average starting pitching performance. Right. So I, I think you're definitely on to something there. And one thing that I, I noticed, and I think that the best way to kind of attack this podcast tonight is, is maybe talk about the games chronologically. Let's go through game one first, and then we'll get into game two. Sure. But – if you just look at the day as a whole, I think one issue that this team really has is that there just isn't enough thump. You know, they had 58 official at-bats today, and they had two extra base hits. They had the Michael Franco home run, and we'll talk a little bit about Michael Franco in a little bit. And then, obviously, in the fifth inning of Game 2, that was the other extra base hit. It was a bases-clearing double by Aaron Nola, of all people. And, you know, don't think for one second that if he doesn't get that hit in the fifth inning, that they, they win that game. I mean, they, they do not win 
game two tonight if Aaron Nola doesn't clear the bases with that double in the fifth <laughs> inning. Yeah. And, I mean, you're talking about losing to just an absolutely wretched Mets team and getting swept at City Field. And I know they have an issue with this Mets team, and I know sometimes goofy things happen with division rivals, but this is a, a bad baseball team that has seemingly quit. Yeah, and the, for the you're Phillies right. To, 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 for the Phillies to play the types of games that they did with this team today – it is a little bit alarming to me. And, and if you want someone to piss positive, turn on WIP. There are a couple hosts over there that will, will do that for you. And <laughs> I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. I'm not going to call anybody out. But there's a couple guys that are going to, you know, just they'll, they'll piss positive for you all day tomorrow. And you can we're buddies. We're, we're buddies on Twitter. Yeah, and, and that's good. fine. Yeah, and, and that's great. But if you, if you want the <laughs> truth, what you have here is you have a team that – in the middle of July, as we enter the All-Star break, has a chance to make the postseason. That we both believe can make the postseason and has certain components that they can ride to play October baseball. But I think that you'd be kidding yourself at this point if you didn't think that this team needed to improve not only in the bullpen, but maybe a, a, you know, a piece in the starting lineup and certainly the bench. And I think that we've talked about this and I credit you because I think that you were one of the few people that really talked about how weak this bench was not last week or two weeks ago, but six weeks ago, this is a, a paper thin bench. And that was certainly evident in game one today. They take uh, Zach Eflin out after 84 pitches. He goes five innings, three earned runs, five hits, no walks, four strikeouts, a, an okay performance from Zach Eflin. So they, they pinch it, uh, Aaron Altera in the top of the sixth inning, runner on first, one out, and he rolls over into a 5-4-3 double play. Terrible bat, right? Eighth inning, they send up uh, Jesmoel Valentin, uh, bases loaded, one out after a, a brilliant at-bat, what I thought was one of Mike Alfranco's most impressive at-bats all year, an eight-pitch at-bat in which he works a walk, lays off a couple tough sliders in the dirt, and Valentin strikes out on a 3-2 pitch. Uh, absolutely, you know, it, it, you have to find a way to put the ball in play there. And then in the uh, 10th inning, uh, Dylan Cousins, uh, he comes up and, and he, he strikes out because that's, that's what Dylan Cousins does. And I think that it just perfectly illustrates what they have in terms of their depth and what they have on the bench. And, and that's another place that they have to improve upon as they get to the deadline. And, and if you want to say that everything's great and Gabe Kapler should be manager of the year and this is a great team and you should be happy because they have 50 wins in, on July 9th and, and everything's wonderful, that's great. But then you're going to be disappointed when they finish it with 82 wins and, and fall short of the postseason. Yeah, I, you know, it's something. You know, I, I texted you over the weekend. I think it was, I think it was over the weekend. I think it was during the Pirates series. It might have been even during the first game of the Pirates series. And um, – and I said to you that the thing that that aggravates me the most is that I have a feeling that what's going to happen with the Phillies is this, that they're going to make the playoffs. And not only are they going to make the playoffs, but I have a feeling that, you know, that they're going to get into the division series. Because even if, you, even if they're a wild card, I will put my money on Aaron Nola. Okay, because that's likely – if you're in a wild, one-game wild card – you're probably got you probably got Aaron Nola throwing for you, okay? And the, just the way this guy's pitched this year, there's not many guys that are out there who can who can pitch who have been pitching with the consistency and dominance that he has. Um, so I have a feeling the Phillies are going to be in a division series, but that's what scares me. And I said to you in the text, I'm afraid that this team's going to get into the playoffs and get totally blown or have their doors blown off by another team 
who takes advantage of multiple weaknesses in their lineup and potential, you know, matchup situations against the bullpen. And I, and that's the thing that that concerns me the most. And I think what would happen then is then we'd we really see where the city is with this team. Because you're either then at that point going to say, you're going to have your people who say, oh, well, we never expected them to even get into the playoffs. So this was just a bonus. This was okay. And then you'll have the people like us who will sit there and say, this just goes to show you how far away they were all year long. And that's, and that's the thing that I worry about the most. I'd almost rather – this is going to sound terrible. I, I'd almost rather that they – that you know, well, assume, let's just assume that Clentac – I feel the, a take coming on here. I yeah. This you, is you, one it, that we're going to put on quotes on Yeah, Twitter, I know. Yeah. It, it is. It is. Let's just imagine just, just for sake of, of argument that Clentac makes one or two – you know, moves, but nothing overwhelming. No like super. Whit no, Merrifield. Yeah, like a yeah. Whit Merrifield and maybe one bullpen arm or something like that. And nothing. No Machado. No big name added player, right? But just a just a couple of small tweaks. So then, let's just imagine that's the case. I'd almost rather, in that instance, that they come close but miss the playoffs than go into playoffs and get their doors blown off. I really would. I really would because I think that that's that's something that you know I. I think back to the team that won in 08, all right, and they made the playoffs for the first time in 07. And I think back to the four years before that, five years really, before that, where each season, 01, 02, 03, 04, 05, 06, six years, where they were kind of in it. And then something went awry in September and they didn't get in. And it was kind of frustrating. And, you know, these guys are, oh, when are they ever going to get over the hump? You know, but it, it was kind of that kind of thing helped them be more hungry down the road. I, I worry that you get a young team who's not ready for prime time into the playoffs and they get their doors blown off, that that's a, that's a worse outcome than just missing and then having to, you know, all right, now we've got to pursue it again next year. I, that's just me. And that's just, I don't know. Well, maybe, and, you know maybe I'm and, nuts. And to, and to go back to that era, I mean, is it, is it that they missed the playoffs so many consecutive years leading up to that? Or is it that they got their doors blown off in the 2007 playoffs when they got swept by the Rockies? You well, know, what, what was it that made them more hungry? And that's a totally different team because the one thing that we can say about that era is that we knew that you had a, an MVP-type player in Ryan Howard and, and another guy in Chase Utley. Like, you saw those parts there. You, you know what the crazy thing is about this team is that you watch these guys up and down the lineup and you just go, who do I feel – who do I feel great about? Nobody. So, like, so during that time period, you watch Chase Utley come to the plate and you go, this guy's a stud. And you watch Ryan Howard, especially in 2006, 7, 8, and go, this guy's a stud. And you watch Shane Victorino, and you go, this guy has the it factor. And Jason yeah. Wirth was ultra productive. You know, there were guys that you could point to that lineup that you said, I feel like that this is a, a premier offensive player who has a chance to, to just keep getting better. When you look at this lineup, <laughs> I mean, you really kind of have to – you have to look at them from the right angle in order to make it work, right? Like you look at Carlos Santana, and I can throw some numbers at you from Carlos Santana that makes you say he's having a good year. But then I also can drop a 216 batting average on you, and you, you know, even if you value OPS and you value all the walks, and and I do, and I understand that he has 14 homers, and you look at the OPS and he's like in the 780s. That's great. I understand that batting average is not. The, the way that you evaluate offensive production in 2018. But 
there is something to be said for the fact that the guy's hitting 216 right now in the middle of July. Like, there just is. I'm sorry. I can't get over it. But, like, that's what you have to do with it. pretty much every guy in this lineup. You go, well, if you look at it, this, he's actually having a pretty good year. But you can't just look at the entire stat line and go, guy's crushing it right now. Yeah. No, you're right. And, and isn't there a stat out there that tells you that Tommy Hunter's actually been decent this yeah. year? I mean, a little <laughs> Fielding, in fielding independent yeah, pitching, pitching, is that yeah. what it is, right? FIP, Tommy yeah. Hunter, yeah. <laughs> Tommy. Yeah, yeah, I said on Twitter tonight when he was choking in the uh, second game, I said, I think I'm beyond calling the guy Tommy anymore. Like, like is he, you know, like, my name is, my name's Bob, right? So yeah. my, my birth name's Robert. If you called me Rob growing up, it, like, really made me upset. Like, I don't like Rob, I don't like Robbie. Like, I want to know what, what Tommy Hunter doesn't like, and that's what I want to start calling that guy. Thomas. Like, you know, yeah, Thomas. You're getting Thomas. full Thomas from here on out until you get the ERA <laughs> under four. No more no more Tommy. Like, you're not an old pal. You, you showed up here. You've been terrible all year. I don't care that you keep the ball in the yard and you don't walk guys. You're getting hit all over the place. He's killing me. The guy is absolutely terrible. You, so, know what else, you, know what else, you know what else kills me about him real quick? Every time he has a bad outing, which is pretty much every appearance, and then Gabe has to go out to the to the mound of release to release to take him out. There's always invariably that close up of him, and he's got this eye roll that he does. It drives me insane. Like he looks to the Tommy sky. Tommy Hunter like, does. Does he really? Yes. Like, like Tommy you're, Hunter you're coming does. Coming out here and taking me out. Well, Did it's you? not even. It's not that kind of an eye roll. It's more of an I can't believe that this happened to me yeah. again. Oh my god, yeah. I'm having All the right. worst luck of okay. any pitcher ever. Well, That's the kind of that. eye roll it yeah. is. Okay, and it's it's like, dude. You you're just not doing your job. I mean, it's that's it. I mean, it's you, know, you can roll your eyes all you want. You can say it's bad luck all you want. It's been f- four months of this now. There's not been like, a, a run of good outings at all. I mean, you've had hey. one sporadic here and there, but you're so inconsistent. If I, Hector, I swore, I swore to myself. You're you're about to say Hector Neris. If and, Hector Neris didn't blow up the way he did. We'd all be complaining. We would be wondering if they were going to get rid of Tommy Hunter earlier in the year, earlier Absolutely. in the season. Yeah, you know it's 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 funny because you, I I swore to myself I wasn't going to come come on here tonight and just rail on guys. I really I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna be measured. I'm gonna take a deep breath. I don't want to overreact. I I feel bad for these guys on a human level when they don't perform well, and it's really nothing personal. Like Tommy Hunter might be an, an awesome guy. I'm sure he is. I, I hate him. You know, like I he comes onto the he comes onto the field and he, he's always in these critical situations. It's always uncomfortable. He always makes things interesting. He often does not do his job. And I can't stand him. And it's it's a funny thing, right? Because like Tommy Hunter might be the best guy on earth. And you're like, man, like here's this guy doing a podcast and he's trying. Nobody feels worse about what's happening than Tommy Hunter. And I just I cannot stand him. And I almost wonder, and I actually tweeted it out tonight as he was on the mound and, and kind of let the Mets back into it in the ninth inning. Do you think, like, do these guys all go on Twitter after the game? And, oh, every one and, of them. And just do a, a search of their every names? Every one Could of you them. imagine being Tommy Hunter tonight at 11.30? You take your shower after the game and you go, that was a tough performance for me in the ninth tonight. Let me see what people are saying about me. They and you all, go on and you see they all do. Bob Wankel of Crossing Broad saying, I'm not calling this guy Tommy anymore. And, and, and honestly, like that's a, stupid, that's a stupid tweet. But there are so many people saying so many awful things about these guys. And like, does, do they internalize that? Do they take that with them? Does that start I, well, to add I, up and bother them? I, I, I mean, I, I think every guy is a little bit different, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, some guys are probably a little bit more thin-skinned than others. 
Um, and you know, it's the whole old adage about having rabbit ears. Like, do, do you let anything that the public says bother you? I don't know. Some guys never do. Some guys, yes, and it, and it eats at them, and they can never get over it. Um, so I have no idea what, you know, Tommy, you, you blow what Tommy Hunter's a, way is. but You don't get a hold in the eighth inning in 2006. You just don't turn on WIP on your way home from the park. Now, I mean, it's just a, it's a totally different – yeah, totally a, different day. It's a different world, you know. So I know. So I know you're not going to rip anybody tonight. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Scott Kingery. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to. I'm going uh, to take a pass on that one. <laughs> Come yeah. on, Bob. Nah, I mean, <laughs> it's tough. You know, I um I said in uh, Slack today. Uh, you know, we have the Slack chat where all the crossing broad guys we kind of communicate throughout the day, talk about stories, and talk about what's going on. And uh, I said I don't want to publicly go out there and start blasting Scott Kingery, but I, I believe in my heart of hearts that he will ultimately be a good player uh, two, three years down the line. I think that if the circumstances were different, if, if this wasn't a first-place team uh, that and this team had some depth and they had other options, Scott Kingery probably wouldn't be playing shortstop every day. But as it is, uh, he is the everyday shortstop on a team that is fighting for a playoff spot for the first time since 2011, and he is tough to watch. Um, I, I know that it, late in the game, in game one, he had a delayed steal and he had a, a, a bump for a base hit and he made some things happen. And the defense is, is somewhat solidified in, in recent weeks and, and that's all fine and well. But day in, day out, watching him hit, his approach, his inability to adjust to how pitchers attack him, it's, it's tough to stomach. And you just see pitchers go away, away, away on him. And, and he just will not take the ball the other way on a consistent basis. And it's, it's tough. It's infuriating. His lack of contact, his lack of consistent, uh, you know, his lack of consistent ability to get on base, it's, it's tough to watch right now. Yeah, it, it's, it's not good. And, we, you know, we were talking about it before the, game, uh, before the uh, broadcast here. And uh, he, he only – his only hits – Pretty much anymore. I know he had four hits the other night against Pittsburgh, right? And that he actually had a couple up the middle there. But for the most part, his hits, the only time you see him get on base with a hit is when a pitcher makes a mistake on the inner half, and then he can pull it, yank it over to the third baseman's head down the line a little bit. That's, that's his bread and butter, okay, right now for the Phillies. And to, got, and to be fair, he's been on a decent stretch lately. Like if yeah, you look yeah, at the last three weeks, like it's like 270, 280. He's, he's been better. But – He's just he's so far away from being the player that we thought he was going to be back in March. And we aren't we weren't we weren't alone in 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 that assessment. Like everybody's been wrong about Scott Kingry. There wasn't a guy out there who said, "And eh, let's not jump the you know jump the gun with this guy yet. He might not be right." Like everyone, and I'm not saying in Philadelphia or in the Phillies organization, there were people from other organizations, as you pointed out as well, who. Just loved this kid. The next and, Dustin and, Pedroia, which yeah. is the worst thing that could have ever happened. That's a completely unfair expectation and a completely unfair comp to put on him. But he he looks like Desi Relliford at the plate right now. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the type of production you're getting out of him. Now, the thing is, and it's like I, I preface this entire conversation by saying I do believe that he's going to be fine. I, I think that he will be a fine major league hitter. But uh, it just – he's not there right now. It just hasn't happened yet. And when you are in high-stakes games, high-pressure bats day in, day out, those struggles are magnified. And whether or not that's fair, I don't know. But, it, it, you know, it's I, – I think that 
the patience is starting to wear a little bit with Scott Kingery. And, you know, though, for the people that have really watched this day in, day out, I think that they can, they can understand that. If you're just kind of tuning in now last week or two, you go, oh, I don't know, he's a young kid, he struggles, and that's, that's what happens, and that's baseball. And, you know, it takes some time. And, like, if you, if you step back and look at it that way, sure. But when you watch a guy have 250, 300 plate appearances and struggle the way that he has and, and really kind of hasn't adapted at this point, it's a little bit of a concern. Yeah, and I, uh, you pointed out he has been a little bit better lately. I just looked in the past month, uh, he's hitting two seventy two. Mm-hmm. On base isn't still isn't great three seventeen. So he's he's really not walking, um, but he's also he's not he's got he's a banjo hitter, right? He's not even he's not driving the ball. He's slugging three set. Even though he's hitting two seventy two, he's only slugging three seventy. He's only he's got five extra base hits in a month. That's it. That's not enough, man. You got to be better. You got to be a little bit better than that. I and, and he had I agree the power you, surge in the yeah. minors last yeah. year. What did he have? I think he ended up with twenty six home runs yeah, in the minors. Yep. And I don't think anybody ever thought that Scott Kingery was going to be a twenty twenty five home run guy here. But I, did I think that he might have more than two? You know the <laughs> the twenty one extra base hits that he that he has in basically three hundred plate appearances at this point. Yeah, I, I guess I thought he would have a little bit more pop than that. Yeah, I yeah I so yeah you're right. There is not a guy in the lineup currently who I I get excited that he's coming up. Like you you sit there and say, oh okay, oh this is a good spot for this guy. Because there's there's not one player who's been consistent. You made a great argument on crossing broad because a lot of people were saying, oh Odubel Herrera deserved to be an all star, and he doesn't. You are 100 percent correct, and it's because he's a little streaky. Okay, he's a lot streaky, um, and he, you know, and he has, you know, he had a great start that was obviously unsustainable, and then he went into a real tank for three weeks, but then he came out of it again pretty strong, and now he's kind of, you know, on the on the downslope again. So he's he's a streaky player, and he's a good player, and he's above, like you said, he's an above average player. He's a he's a top fifteen outfielder, um, but he's not an all star. And, you know, even even he, even he is not a guy who you sit there and say, I feel really good about his approach at the plate come lately that he's going to get a big hit when they, when they need it. There's not a guy in this lineup who you feel that way about. You know they're going to walk. They walk a ton. <laughs> they, did they walk the bases loaded twice tonight in two games? Yeah. I think it happened in both games, if I, if I remember correctly. Late in game one and early in game two, right? Didn't Nola's hit was with the bases loaded because they yeah, walked. They intentionally three walked, walked. Uh, Franco to get right. to Nola. Yeah. Right. So three walks in that inning, and there were three walks in the eighth inning of the first game. So they walked. The, they're going to walk a ton, and that's great. And you know, I like walks too. I'm a fan of walks, but <laughs> they don't do anything else. So you don't ever, you don't ever think that they're going to get a hit. Like there's never a time I sit there and go, oh yeah, this this guy's going to get a hit. I, I mean, to, to, I to be up it. in arms about Odubel Herrera at this point, I mean, guy's hitting 276 with a 793 OPS. Uh, actually, in the story, and let me just, just let me make this point real quick. Entering today, forget the two games today, 281 average. So that's 11th uh, among qualified, amongst uh, qualified outfielders. Slugging percentage 469, that's 10th. His ISO is 188, that's 14th. OPS 804 entering today, 15th. And his weighted on base average 346, 16th. That's those are numbers of a very good player, an above average outfielder. Just he's not an elite level guy because he lacks the consistency. Right. And that's all it is. You know, I mean it's 
it's not an indictment of him as a baseball player. It, it doesn't mean that he's not a winning player. I think that you and I have been extraordinarily uh, up on him. I think we're proponents of him in general. But he wasn't a snub. I mean, there's no, no. way. And I know that Charlie no. Blackman isn't having an outrageous year. And I know that there's some some of the players on the um, the final vote, you know, uh, namely uh, Carpenter uh, from St. Louis. He he's not. I think he's hitting in like the 250s, 260s. He's not a guy that's having a great year. And I get all that, but you could make some argument that Odubel Herrera could have been on this team, but he. He's not a, an extremely marketable player. He's not one of the game's brightest stars. And absent of absurd numbers, he's not a snub. He just isn't. No, I think you could make a better argument that Dominguez was a snub more so than, than Odubel yeah. was. I mean, in all honesty. Um, well, and even to that degree, maybe even Hoskins. Uh, I don't know. And again, another issue there was that Reese Hoskins went through a three, four-week stretch where he was he – was, Below, well below league average. You know, there has to be some level of consistency, and I know that you get that with young players, right? That, I think that that's a, a hallmark trait of young players is that it comes and goes at times. But these guys need to be a little bit more consistent before we enter them into this conversation of, well, they should be all-stars. You know, they have stretches. They have series, weeks, 10-day ten, ten stretches where they look like uh, they are perhaps one of the five, ten best players in the league, and then they just they fall off a cliff. You know, there has to be a little bit of more of a, a level of consistency in their performance when, before we enter them into that conversation. All right, well, we've spent the first half hour of the podcast today basically ripping a first-place team. <laughs> I mean, we did, I, and, I, and I feel terrible about it. I mean, really do because it's I, I like, don't because I think we're being realistic. Well, we uh, are being yeah. re- we are being realistic, but I mean, I you know the thing of it is is we do we you know we do understand that there are you know the people who do listen to listen to our podcast are really hardcore Phillies fans and they want truth and we we give them the truth, but they also want to feel good about the fact that their team's in first place and it's the first time that they're pushing for a playoff in seven years. So you know we do have to recognize some of the positives as well, and there are some some positives to really look at and be excited about um, going forward. And one of the things that we really got to look at of this past week that we haven't really talked about is guess what? Until tonight's Tommy Hunter exploit, the bullpen's actually been pretty good, and we've killed them on this show. We've killed them, and they deserve to be killed. And and I'm not certain that this isn't anything more than just a one-week, hey, we've, we've kind of you know figured it out for a week, and then it's going to go bad again at some point down the line. For now, hey, let's be happy. The bullpen is is doing some good stuff. Yeah, uh, since the Vince Velasquez start uh, against the Nationals last Saturday night, the bullpen in 36 and one-thirds innings pitched has allowed only five earned runs. Uh, that includes the uh, Victor Arano uh, home run to Wilmer Flores in game one of today. Uh, it, I mean, they've, they have been much better. Uh, you go back through that national series, the performance they gave you both in the Saturday night game and the Sunday game, uh, that won those games. Uh, they were very good against Baltimore. Uh, they had two innings pitched on both the uh, Tuesday and Wednesday games. In that series, they came back against Pittsburgh after a, a very short uh, Nick Pavetta appearance on Friday night. Oh, I know the offense took off late in that game, but they held down the, the fort there on Friday night and gave you two solid innings. Uh, on Saturday after Jake Arrieta exited um, in, in the 8th and ninth, 
And then they, they kept the offense in the game on Sunday against uh, the Pirates as well. The offense couldn't generate anything. And, and then they gave him four solid innings before Arano surrendered the home run tonight. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's been a good week-plus effort from this bullpen. Uh, so there is something to be said for that. And I know that you have a take on why you think that is. Because they're settling into roles. They're settling into, into the, what their roles are. You're going to get Dominguez for an inning or two, usually, and, it, and kind of like the Andrew Miller role. I, that's, I, that's the only way to really describe it because that's, I think that's how he's being used. Basically, whenever Gabe decides is the most critical time in the lineup, uh, and although there have been a couple of occasions where I've disagreed with Gabe that the guys that he threw Dominguez out there against – were the most dangerous guys in the lineup or most critical point in the game. Um, for the most part, he is coming in against you know the better hitters um, of other teams and, and doing a nice job. Um, after that stretch where he was kind of being overused and, and misused, they, the Phillies have done a nice job of kind of settling him into that, that role, and he's done a nice job. Um, I think that a lot of this had to do with uh, Pat Neshek finally coming off the DL. He's given them four solid innings so far. I, th- I want to say he's pitched four innings. I think he's had three um, appearances and uh, actually just short of three innings. But, yeah, I mean, he hasn't a three, allowed so earned three, run yet. Yeah. Does that include tonight? Yes. Okay, so. all right. So yeah. then it's three innings. Okay. Um, and then uh, uh, Ramos just came off the DL. He was pitching really well before he got what got hurt. He came back. He gave them an, uh, a decent inning. Um, Arano has been, I mean, before giving up the home run to Flores tonight, had been really good. And matter of fact, been used a few times now as a closer in the ninth yeah. inning, uh, and done a nice job. Yeah, even so, after the home run tonight, I mean, he still has a, a two five three ERA, uh, two five three ERA in thirty games and uh, two saves. So thirty two innings pitched, two five three ERA, thirty five strikeouts, a one point zero nine WHIP. So I mean, yeah. you look at Nishek, uh, Ramos, Dominguez. Uh, Arano, these those those guys have done, and certainly Nishak is fresh here in in this conversation. But those guys right. have gotten the job done for you, right? And I and I think that's part of the reason why the bullpen in in the last uh, nine days has been as good as it's been. Now they're going to need these guys to continue to be consistent. Look, there's going to be games where they give up a run or give up a, a couple runs. It, it's going to happen. But if if you know eight out of ten, nine out of ten. These guys are giving you the kinds of performances that they are consistently have been given, or Nishek actually, you know, kind of reminisces to last year. Uh, then I think that I think that you're okay, and you maybe only need the one arm in the bullpen. Even though last week and the week before, I kept saying they need not they need more than one. They need two arms. Maybe you only do need the one arm uh, in the bullpen before the trade deadline. So that's that's a positive, and I think that that's that's something that you know the Phillies can hang their hat on. Um, obviously, we talked about starting pitching being being huge. Uh, Eflin up until tonight, and even tonight wasn't a terrible game, uh, but there was just kind of a mediocre start for him tonight. But pri- previous to that, six great starts um, for the Phillies with ERA under two. Nola, we have to start thinking about talking about him as a Cy Young candidate. I mean, and I know that it's I, I we've been resisting saying those words, but geez, he's got one more start before the All Star break. He's twelve and two. He's almost unhittable on most nights. He's, I think he's had one bad start this year, like one, and, and the other everything else has been either good or great. Um, and then Arietta had a nice bounce back over the weekend. Pitched yeah, a strong it was huge game on Saturday. Yeah. yeah, pitched a strong game on Saturday. So again, you're getting there's some positives in the starting pitching, but that's been there all year. So let's stretch out the positives. 
Okay, let's let's walk back to Zach Eflin for a second. Go ahead. Uh, report comes out last week that the Phillies would be reluctant or or straight up just would not trade Zach Eflin for Manny Machado uh, on a one-on-one deal. Uh, let me get your reaction to that first before we kind of delve into what he has accomplished over the last month and a half. Okay, yeah. So what that tells me, whether it's the right decision or the wrong decision, and I'm not. I, boy, I would have a hard time. Not get, I'm not, geez, if, if I can, if here's the thing, if I could be assured that Manny Machado would then sign here and it's not just a rental and then he's going to go somewhere else, like if he would agree, you know, his, him and his agent would agree to an extension um, as part of this trade, I, yeah, I would trade Zach, Eff, Zach Eflin. Even though I like the guy, I would trade him for Machado and I wouldn't even what think What if twice he about wouldn't it. agree to it? Then I probably wouldn't, and the reason I wouldn't at this point is because I, I I'm going to trust the Phillies a little bit here. I'm going to trust that the fact that the Phillies coming out and saying that means that they believe in Eflin. That like they look at this kid, they liked him a lot. I mean, they orchestrated. You know, it was almost like a three team deal, even though it took a couple of days. Eflin went from the Padres to the Dodgers, and then eventually to the Phillies for uh, for Jimmy Rollins in that trade. Um, they liked him enough to to orchestrate that. Uh, and make him the piece that they got for Rollins that started this rebuild. You know, I remember that was the first trade in the rebuild. So Zach Eflin was the first piece that was traded for, okay, um, in this whole rebuild. Um, and they, you know, he was one of the first guys that they brought in to give him a shot at the major league level. He had a, he was dealing with leg injuries, which a lot of people always everybody's always concerned with, with pitchers to say, oh, the arm, shoulder, elbow, whatever. I'll tell you right now, pitching is all – and you can – Bob, you can back me up on this as a guy who's coached the sport. Pitching's all about your lower half, right? I mean, how, how important is the lower half for a pitcher? And you, you take away two, two knees yeah. from a pitcher and, and let me know what that does for him. Right. And so he gets off-season surgery on both knees. He feels healthy. And then they make a very mo- minor adjustment and make him pitch from the opposite side of the rubber than where he usually throws from. And you see the results. You see the difference that it's making. And now the Phillies say, we might be on to something here. And even if Zach Eflin never becomes anything more than a number three guy or number four guy, he's a quality three, quality four. And they're looking at it and saying, why would we, why would we trade a 24-year-old controllable pitcher who we like a, lo- a lot right now for two months of a player who will come in and, yeah, will make us better, will help us get to the playoffs when we know our lineup is not ready? Yeah. And that's and that's uh, why they don't do it. A twenty-four-year-old pitcher who is controllable through twenty twenty-two, four and a half years. Yeah, you have him under control. A guy coming off injury whose velocity is up, who has completely readjusted the way that he attacks opposing hitters. Uh, let me just—I'll throw some things out at you about Zach Eflin, and you can kind of tell me what you make of this, but. Uh, had he won his start tonight, he would have joined Cliff Lee in 2011 and Steve Carlton in 1981 as the only Phillies pitchers to win seven consecutive starts, to be the winning pitcher in seven consecutive starts. Now, obviously, that did not play out tonight, but when you think about the history of this team and some of the starting pitchers that they've had in here, that's, that's pretty damn impressive that he was even in the conversation and had the offense backed him up. And, and really, had he not run into some bad luck with some of the shifts that occurred in the third inning, uh, it might have been a different outcome for him tonight. Um, 84 pitches, five innings pitched, five hits, four strikeouts, no walks, three earned runs. 315 ERA after today's start. But let me just kind of let, let me just talk to you about how he entered the day. Um, since June 1st, starting pitchers in the National League with at least 35 innings pitched, 
191 ERA, first in the National League. Opponents batting average, 210, eighth in the National League. Only allowed one home run entering today. Opponents slugging, 301, fourth in the National League. A 0.93 whip, which was third. Uh, 2.30 FIP, second. And a 245 weighted on base average. Uh, for opposing hitters, which was third best in the National League. I mean, you're not talking about a guy here that that is having a nice stretch. You're talking about a guy over uh, a basically six, seven-start stretch who's been one of the best pitchers in all of the National League. Uh, is this sustainable? I, I don't know. I would expect regression, and which I suppose is what you got today, uh, although I, I really thought watching the start that a lot of it was a product of, of bad luck. To be, to be honest with you, um, I, I think that you can make an argument at this point that he is a legitimate middle-of-the-rotation guy. And, and does he have number one starter upside? No. But I would be very reluctant to move that for two months of a player who is probably going to take the, the, the contract from the highest bidder. Yeah, no, you're right. And I'll tell you another thing that's impressive about that. You, you say since June 1st. The Phillies' month of June – let's not forget, was a very tough month with opponents too. So it's not like he was doing that against bottom feeders in baseball, against teams that were you know out of the race and not, you know trying to play a bunch of young kids and give them a shot or whatever the case might be. He did that against good baseball yeah, teams. Yeah, the uh, Milwaukee Brewers twice, I believe, the yep. Nationals, the Yankees. I mean, these are legitimate opponents. Yeah, so I think that that's, that's even more – uh, what impresses the Phillies, and I think that's even a, a more reason why you don't make this trade, Eflin for for Machado. I, I don't. If I would, if Machado says, "Yeah, all right, I'll sign a lo- an extension long term," okay, then to me, I, I can sit there and say, "Look, you got to you, you got to feel a little bit of pain when you when you trade for a superstar player." So if that's the case, and we got to lose Zach Eflin because of it, so be it. But not for two months. I'm I, th- sorry, I think that the other thing that you have to look at is long-term roster construction. So if you're going to go out and sign premier free agents, and we all assume that that's what the Phillies are going to do, that, that John Milton's finally going to buck up and go out and sign guys to you know, $100 million contracts, and he's going to go out and buy and add through free agency. That's, that's what we all assume is going to happen this winter. And if they're going to do that, at some point you need controllable, cost-effective pitching. Uh, you know, you need it in, in in your lineup as well. But, I mean, if you're going to go out and add big-time free agent hitters and you're going to go out and spend money on premier free agents, you, you have to get value at some point. And a guy like Zach Eflin offers you a ton of value. And so while we look at this through the prism of what can they do in 2018 to take this thing over the top, to win the NL East, to be competitive in the playoffs, to possibly find themselves in a World Series, and Let's be honest, none of us would watch this right now if we didn't think that there was some at least remote possibility that that could occur, whether that sounds ridiculous or not. I mean, that's why we watch sports, because we think our teams might win championships. You, you have to step back and say, if you're looking at the long-term construction of this roster and how they're going to build this team, a guy like Zach Eflin is almost necessary in order to be a viable contender for a long multiple year period yeah because of the control because four and a half years I mean that's that's the huge part about it um so that's why and 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 that's why you you know you don't do it at this time you don't trade Zach Eflin at this point another positive another guy you wrote about 
How about Mike Calfranco again? Kind of slowly creeping back up. Yeah. Uh, he's had, got a decent batting average, still hitting home runs and driving in runs. His OPS is climbing closer and closer to that magic 800 number. Uh, playing decent defense out there, made a couple of nice plays. Uh, this, you know, he saved a game against the Orioles last week um, uh, on a diving play when he should, well, should have been in the position to begin with, but um, nevertheless <laughs> made a diving play. Um, made a real nice play. Uh, was it uh, last night I, or, or yesterday afternoon, rather, um, on a bare hand play down the third baseline? Even though uh, they lost the game, the, the guy's been playing decent baseball, and it makes you wonder: Do they really need to upgrade the third base position this year if this is how the guy's going to play? If you watch the Phillies every day for the last uh, three seasons, it's tough to buy what you're seeing right now. Whenever Michael Franco does something well or he shows those flashes, he's kind of a tantalizing player in that way, uh, you're always a day away from an 0 for 3 with three strikeouts on pitches that are are low and away out of the strike zone on sliders and, and beating balls to third base and shortstop, but... Really, what he's done over the last three, three and a half weeks now has been pretty impressive. Entering today, 370 batting average, 433 on base percentage, and a 1.026 OPS. Um, he had the fifth best batting average in all of baseball uh, during that stretch. And really, to put this into a, a Phillies perspective, his 775 OPS at the end of play tonight is currently higher than that of Cesar Hernandez. Uh, and is fourth best on the team behind only Reese Hoskins, Odubel Herrera, and Carlos Santana. And he's starting to close in on those guys. Um, he's, he's been really good the last three, three and a half weeks. And uh, I wrote today on CrossingBroad.com about how it really couldn't have happened at a better time for the Phillies. Because they're either going to make a decision and say, we don't need to go out and acquire a guy like Mike Moustakis or Adrian Beltre because the, the upgrade, if there is any upgrade at all, is going to be very minimal. So why would we utilize any of our prospects or our minor league resources in order to make a minimal upgrade? Or some team's going to say, this is the guy that we think he is. Let's trade him. Let's trade for him. You know, and he's becoming a valuable trade chip in that way. So this is a this is a good problem to have for the Phillies. But they are going to have to figure out: is this a player that can help us win this season, and maybe moving forward, or is this a guy that we need to strike while the iron's hot and you know trade him to a San Diego or whoever else may be interested and get back something of value while we can. Uh, but but either way, he's been impressive uh, over the last three, four weeks. And uh, this was a guy that was buried and kind of left for dead uh, when they made the decision to make J.P. Crawford the everyday third baseman prior to his injury. It makes you wonder also, Bob, with as good as Franco's been in those, these past three weeks, let's just imagine Crawford doesn't get hurt. Are Phillies a first-place team right now? Uh, probably not. I mean, J.P. Crawford's only played – I think he's played less than 60 games in his career. So I don't want to make any – sweeping generalizations about J.P. Crawford's offensive ability, but you're, you're talking about a guy that's hitting around 200 this season, and I know he works walks and all of that, but he just does not give you the the offensive upside that Mike Alfranco does. And I don't know what that says about J.P. Crawford, but no, they probably are not in first place without the production they've gotten from third base over the past three weeks. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's that – 
you know, it's not. It's just. The, it's just recently too. It's not the whole season. Uh, he had an, a nice little stretch early in April, and then really plummeted and never got out of it until these past three weeks. And he's been he's been probably the most consistent offensive player in the lineup for the past three weeks. I mean, maybe Hoskins, but but it's an argue, a good argument to have. It's one of the two of them. Um, and and because of Franco, and because the Phillies, you know, walk the line between winning and losing almost on a nightly basis. If you don't have Franco's production and you got J.P. Crawford instead, this team's probably at 46 wins right now instead of 50, right? And probably four games back of the Braves, and we're not talking about them as a first-place team. So, you know, Michael Franco's been a difference maker over the last three weeks. That said, I don't think you look at him beyond this season. I, I think that you can get through the rest – Again, I'm going to make the pitch that the Phillies would be better suited going and getting another outfield bat to kind of maybe play a little bit uh, as a fourth outfielder who's you know good on base, good maybe a little bit of pop, and and adding to the bench, getting some veteran guys who know how to come off the bench. I think those those players will be would be better uh, targets than finding Mike Mustakis or or even Beltre, who I love. Um, or I mean, Franco's numbers at this point, though, are, are almost the equivalent of Mike Moustakis's. So it's like, do you yeah. trade? Do you trade a guy like Mike Alfranco for Mike Moustakis at this point? Like, what what is the the net positive there? What are you really gaining? You're I, not. I, I went deep on on Franco today, and I just he he fascinates me because I really thought when he came up that you were looking at a guy that was going to be a perennial all-star. That I, I thought that he was going to be a 280, 35 home run, 120 RBI, middle-of-the-order guy. I thought that he was going to be a centerpiece in one of the, you know, in the next great Phillies team. I really thought that. And when he came up in 2015, he, over 80 games as a rookie, showed those capabilities. And then obviously he took a step back in 2016 and, and last year was a complete disaster. So I started to look at, and we talked about this back in April when he got off to a decent start. Well, what was different this year? What has been the main source of improvement? And the main source of improvement back in April when he was playing well has kind of been what has held true to this point. Four seam fastballs. He's hitting harder, pitching better. So last year, he posted a 741 OPS against the four-seam fastball. He's posting a 991 OPS against the four-seam fastball this season. Check this out. And this is this is actually crazy. And I don't know what you attribute this to. But 2017, he had a 375 OPS against the cutter, which is god-awful. I mean, you'd be better off just throwing a starting pitcher up there at that point. That's what type of production he had against a cutter last year. He has a 9.03 OPS against a cutter this year. He's still not hitting sliders. He's still way, way below league average against a slider, although he did hit one out today. Um, but he's hitting harder pitching this season, and, that, and that's been the biggest adjustment. He still struggles against a changeup. He still struggles against a slider. But when he gets fastballs, he's taking advantage of it. And I will say – as critical as, as we've been of Gabe Kapler at times this year, I love the fact that he's hitting eighth. Even when you look at his numbers and you go, God, Jesus, you got Scott Kingery hitting fifth, sixth. That's brutal. Having Mike Alfranco hit eighth 
what does that do? It allows him to see more fastballs. Pitchers are going to be much more aggressive going after him, right? I mean, I, I think that you would say, like, well, maybe not. Wouldn't they want to pitch around him? I, I think what you end up seeing a lot of times is guys saying, we're at the bottom of the lineup here. I want to start with the pitcher next inning, or let's be aggressive in this spot. We're going to attack him with hard stuff. We're going to attack him with fastballs. And Franco's taking advantage of that, and that's what we've seen over the last week or two, especially with him hitting eighth. And, and I think it's been a, a good spot for him. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, and I've always been of the mindset that the number eight hitter has a tough, has one of the tougher jobs in baseball, in, in the National League anyway. Um, because of because of the fact that the pitcher's behind him, because it could be one of two situations. It could be oh, the team's going to come, you know, try and get you out so that the pitcher leads off the next inning, or they're not going to give you anything to hit because they're going to th- go after the pitcher. You're 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 in a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of spot. Um, and I've always so I've always felt that if a team has an option, they should put a better hitter in eight than seven. That your weakest hitter should probably hit seventh. I've always kind of felt that's the case, um, and and put a little bit better hitter in the eight in the eight spot. So if you're not going to bat Mike Franco in the middle of the lineup, if you're not going to hit him five uh, or six, even I mean I I think that would probably ultimately probably be his best spot at this point. Um, then I, I have zero problem with you batting him eighth. I think that batting him eighth actually helps, um, especially the way he's hitting lately. And and if you're going to bat Hoskins second, he's likely going to be on base for Reese Hoskins. You know what I'm saying? So I, I I'm okay, I'm literally okay with this. This is not outside the realm. This is not like real crazy advanced statistics analytics telling you something that you that you really shouldn't see. It, this is this is rational, reasonable thought process to put him in the eight hole. Yeah, and uh, I just think you may eventually see the pitchers adjust and start kind of slowing up on him a little bit. Uh, you look at what he's done against against the slider and the changeup this year, and it's it's been ugly. And I, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that we don't see pitchers go to this a, a little bit more often. But just to kind of put that in perspective, I mean, like the OPS against the changeup is 522. The OPS against the slider is 496 this year. So uh, with, against those pitches, he still isn't good. But what you're starting to see, though, too, is that he's laying off more of the sliders. He's laying off more of the change-ups. And though he may not be putting those balls in play or being productive against those types of pitches in terms of balls in play, you saw in that at bat. And I just go back to the eighth inning at bat that he had in game one today. He laid off several breaking pitches low in the zone, pitches that you would have seen him wildly flail at previously. And he stays off of them. And then he works the walk. And what you have to do, and people don't really understand this, like hitters have flaws. You're going to have certain pitches that you struggle against. You're going to have certain zones that you struggle with. You know, maybe you just can't hit low and away pitches. It's a matter of staying off of those pitches when they are outside the strike zone in order to live for another pitch and then get one that you can do something with. And I think that that's really been Mike Alfranco's biggest issue as a hitter through two and a half years. He expands the strike zone. He becomes impatient. The pitch recognition lacks. And he ends up putting a lot of weak contact in play. Or he swings at pitches that are well outside of the strike zone and he can't put them in play. That's been his issue. But if he can lay off those pitches, he's shown an ability to do damage with the ones that he can handle. And if he can increase the frequency in which he sees those pitches – it's, it's going to obviously have an, a positive impact on his performance. And I so, think that that's what you've seen in recent weeks with him. So I'll give, you, I'll give you this little stat that I just dug up while you were talking. 
um, that kind of uh, works with what you were just saying. This season, he's been in hitters counts, and what I mean by that, either 2-0, 3-0, or 3-1. Okay, I'm not counting 2-1, but 2-0, 3-0, 3-1. Um, it's uh, 27.5% of the time. That's the best of his career. That's the highest percentage of his career that he's found himself in hitters counts, which means that he's done a nice job of recognizing pitches earlier in at-bats and, and, and get working himself into better counts. So that's a, that's a, to me, that's a, a big positive. Um, again, it's the, it's, I guess it's, it's a little bit better than two, 2015, which was, which was obviously the best he had ever had. Um, but it's even a little bit better than that. So that's kind of telling you that you know he's putting himself in the situation to see those fastballs that he's now hitting harder than he's ever hit before. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that when you look at his offensive performance, and you talked about maybe them being three or four wins below where they're at now, I don't, I don't know. When you look at war and you look at how you actually figure out those numbers, it, I, I, that may be extreme, but I don't think that the Phillies are in first place without his performance. Well, I mean, I don't, I'll tell you why I don't think it's extreme. And I knew that you were going to go there with that because well, I know. I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you very well may be right. You know, I just but, don't know. I mean, I, go ahead. I, well, so, I mean, I know how war's figured out, and I get it, and I think it's a very useful statistic. It, very, it really is. I mean, it kind of really kind of gives you an idea. But, again, it's only basing it off of above a replacement-level player, okay? Um, so, I mean, so that's, that's, what, that's how war is, is, uh, is determined. The Phillies, <laughs> I feel like their lineup on many nights – is chock full of replacement level players um, or replacement level uh, uh, performances. I shouldn't say replacement level players, but replacement level performances. So when you have a guy going as Franco is going, and, and the games are always going to hinge on one or two runs or one or two innings, most of the time the Phillies put up uh, all their runs in one inning. I mean, how often do we see the Phillies putting up like a picket fence? Like, oh, we got to run in this inning and run in this inning. They don't do that. No. They put up a three. And then that's it. You see nothing else the rest of the game. So when you have a guy going like this, and, and I'll give you an example, like Herrera early in the season was doing this, right, when he was hitting 361 um, and was just, you know, we were talking about him as a potential MVP candidate um, in April. They, they were winning games because of that. That was the reason they were winning games. If you take that production away, they lose the game three to two instead of winning it four to three, right? So I think that it doesn't necessarily mean that his production is the win above the replacement, but that it's enough of a difference that a game that's really close is going to swing the could swing the opposite way without his production in the lineup. I, I, I hear you. Um, now they just got to figure out what they want to do about it. Uh, one last thing, actually, a couple of things I want to talk about before we get to one last thing. Yeah. Uh, I just want to give a little shout out to my boy Nick Williams, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, he was over three in game two tonight, but he had a couple hits in game one. 773 OPS. He's like up there in the team lead at this point in OPS. He's, he's in the top four or five guys on the team. Uh, his average is creeping back up to 250 now. He's basically been a 270 hitter over his first full 162 games in the league dating back to uh, the middle of last summer. And it's it's interesting. I think that that's the spot the Phillies have to upgrade in. I think that that's the spot that, and we talked about this at length last week, that provides the ability for them to really upgrade and, and see the most improved performance. 
but uh, he he has certainly proven himself to be a functional player. Um, do you have anything you want to add on Nick Williams, Aaron Altair? Do you want to talk about anything out there, or should well, I no, just keep I, rolling right through this? No, we, I, I agree with you. I, I certainly do, and I we've been but we've been saying for f- three months that Nick Williams should get more time than Aaron Altair. He yeah. finally is. And you're seeing the difference. You're seeing that he's the he's the better player now. It's, does that make him, you know, oh everything's fine and all's well in the world? They don't need anything in the outfield. No, I still think they need a, a, another outfielder. But there's no doubt that Nick Williams is a major league ready player uh, and should be a regular regularly used player. And I don't think Aaron Altair belongs on this roster at this point. Yeah, I, would I, I think we're there. And we talked before the show, and, and you obviously uh, have a lot of experience with hockey, and you were around the Flyers for a lot of years. And I said to you, I, I never want to come on a show and call for a guy's job. I never want to say, well, this guy sucks. You need to, you need to, you know, DFA him. You need to cut him. I, I, you don't want to go there because um, these guys are human beings, and you, you feel bad for them, but – we're, I think, we're at that point with with him. I mean, we're we're five years into this thing, and one seventy three batting average, six oh five OPS. You see the physical tools, and he he did some things over the past few seasons where you say like, I I can see this, I can see his value, but I think that he, and I think you said it best. You said it to me before the show. He is in a, a critical spot in his season and in really his career with the Phillies. He basically has, what now, three weeks left to prove yep. that he provides some value to this team. And if he continues to go out there and strike out 35% of his at-bats and hit sub-200 and really provide them with nothing, then he may be in his final weeks as a Philly. And it's it's a shame because... I really felt coming into the season that Williams was the better offensive player, but as a complement to one another, that these two could be a very productive combined third outfielder for this team, and it just it has not played out that way. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And uh, by the way, I have one last thing. I, before we get to our one last thing, uh-huh. um, I have one more thing that I have to do, and I, I waited an hour and three minutes into the podcast to do this. And it's 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 rare because you know I'm I don't always agree with the manager. I I have a thing where I watch the games and I sit there and say, Gabe, what the heck are you doing? And, you know, I was tw- I went to the game on the Fourth of July and I was sending you pictures from my seats, sending me uh, pictures of plate, shifts and of the saying, shifts. Can you believe this shift? I said, I do. I, I, I I'm I'm drinking. I'm not responding to this shit right now. <laughs> right. Well, it was crazy. So the, the the one that I was most frustrated about was you know Franco has to on on the, um, the night before the fourth on the third, the Phillies hold on to win a game against the lowly Baltimore Orioles. Michael Franco dives back to where he would normally be playing third base to rob Chris Davis of a hit. Okay, he throws it across the diamond, bases loaded, to get this last out. Right, and then oh wow, that's fantastic. Because of the, but it was a crazy shift. The next very next day, Kapler's got all four infielders on one side of the field. I mean, literally all four were on the first base side of the infield, which I don't understand. I mean, what you can't cover all that ground with three? You need a fourth guy over there? I, I don't know. I, I just don't buy into that. That said, that said, Gabe has made some moves this this past week week and a half that have got me saying. All right, Gabe, you got, you're starting to get it, bud. You're starting to figure it out. 
Uh, most notably, in my mind, was leaving Aaron Nola in to face Machado uh, against the Orioles. when it was, He went out there, and I'm thinking, oh, man, he's going to pull him out. Machado's going to tune up somebody out of the bullpen, and they're going to blow and this game. that was the seventh inning on Wednesday, right? So, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the funny thing is, is I actually texted you earlier for this, too. I was getting frustrated because Phillies were down one nothing in the fifth, and they had runners on base, and, and it was getting to the bottom of the order, and I'm thinking to myself, is he going to bat for Nola in a one nothing game uh, against Baltimore just to try and have that big inning? And lo and behold, they got guys on base, and I think like it was Alfaro was coming up, and then it was Franco in the pitcher spot. And Alfaro's striding up to the plate, and I look out to the bullpen, and there's Adam Morgan stretching, getting the shoulders going. And I'm like, oh, man, here we go. He's going to bat for Nola. Now, it didn't get to Nola. It was just a facade, man. It, it didn't a- get to <laughs> Nola. Um, didn't get to him. He left, uh, and he left Nola in, and then he left him in to, fi- to face Machado. I was impressed with that. He did the same thing with Jake Arrieta on Saturday. In the sixth inning, he let Arrieta bat, and the game was they're down 2 nothing at the time. In, in games past, he's pinch hit for that pitcher to try and have the big inning. The Phillies still got a big inning, even letting the pitcher go in that spot. And I've, I've said all along, you have 10 outs to play with, 11 outs to play with. So if, you get, if one of those outs is the pitcher, if he's pitching well, leave him in the game. I'd rather keep the good pitcher in and give up one of those 11 outs to stay in the game than to say, okay, let's pinch hit with Aaron Altair, 173 hitter. Um, and and then say okay now we got to return to a bullpen that hasn't been reliable yeah, uh, although it's been better lately you know what I, I will say about that and and just something to think about because uh, I'm going to actually be a little bit critical of Kapler once you're done this um, you know so in that game with Arietta on Saturday do you think he looks at the fact that he has Drew Anderson starting on Sunday afternoon and a double header on Monday and the fact that Pavetta didn't get out of the fourth inning on Friday night, and he says, you know what, Like we've been pretty hot lately. We've strung together some nice wins. Yeah, we're, we're just going to roll the dice here with Jake. Do you, like, do you think that like, – do you think he went against his his hunch on that one just because he looked at the greater context of what had happened and what was about to happen? I mean, it's possible, but I don't. And, and, and the, my take on it is this. I, I look at today as the example why I'm going to defend this. So the first game today, you would think that right, you got a doubleheader. You, you want to, say, maybe use Dominguez for two innings in, in today's games. You probably would have said, let's use him one inning in game one, and if we need him for an inning in game two, we can go to him for an inning in game two. But because it was a 3-3 game at the time, and they were trying to get the win, and you know, we had a couple of chances late in the game with runners on base, and you're hoping that you can get two go, – let's go for the second inning with Dominguez – and try and get this win, and we'll worry about the next win later. I'm starting to see a little bit more of that out of Gabe. Gabe's trying to win each individual game in the best way possible and then worrying about what, what lies ahead. I mean, you know, like you pointed out at the beginning of this podcast, they threw Eflin and Nola in, a, in the same day, on the same day. They could have just as easily called up um, uh, Yunel De Los Santos to come up and pitch one of these two games today instead of having him throw tomorrow. But they wanted to jump all over the Mets. That was his intent today. And it just didn't work out. They ended up splitting. Um, and so now the, the, kid gets, the kid's going to make his Major League debut tomorrow instead. He could have done it the other way around, yeah. right? I mean, and, and, so, and so I'm telling you, I, I'm starting to see little slight changes here, a little bit. I'm, not, I'm still not on board with the shifts. I'm not on board with Andrew Knapp leading off. <laughs> 
Yeah, man. Okay. You would have thought, like, first time in franchise history, they're going to bat the catcher lead off. And you're thinking, Andrew Knapp, he's swinging a decent bat lately. I get why he did it. I understand what he was thinking. You think, like, here's Andrew Knapp. He's doing pretty well lately. He goes, Gabe, I got you, man. I'm going to go out there and get a couple knocks for you today. And, I mean, just it couldn't have gone any worse. It was just a total disaster. <laughs> it was. But, yeah. then he, but then he praised him yeah, afterwards. Did yeah, you see yeah. him quote the quotes? Yeah, nappy. Yeah, he was great. Oh, he, had a, he had five pitch at bat, yeah, the first on. at bat. That's yeah. what we wanted. We yeah. saw a lot of pitches. And then we wanted to, we wanted to get his bat going a few more times. He said, you only bat, you only bat leadoff once in a game. Gabe, 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 Gabe. Yeah. The leadoff hitter could bat lead off more than once listen i i can't i'm not going to get into a situation here where i'm going to start criticizing a guy that's 50 and 39 in his first season and and, you know like we talked about at the top of the show 50 wins and they didn't have that until the end of august last year and he honestly regardless of what you think about him if you just look at if you if you stand away from it you kind of look at the total picture here you go he could very well be in contention for the National League Manager of the Year at this oh, point. No. I mean, mm-hmm. that's something. And I know. But it's it's funny if you looked at this first game today, uh, third inning, there's two outs, nobody on base. Brandon Nimmo comes up, and uh, it's it's one-two count, and he hits a chopper at third base. And, I mean, this is as routine as it gets. And Mike Alfranco has, has shifted a couple feet to uh, – I guess the left of where he would be normally, and it gets through. And um, Jose Bautista comes up next batter, and he beats Kingery up the middle. And Kingery was shifted a little bit in the hole, and all of a sudden you got first and you know first and third, and and then Herrera makes an error in center field, runs scores, and he just you go. Damn it, man! Like you can't have it all, right? Like it can't just be. You were you were saying to me like right before this happened. I actually feel pretty good about Gabe Kapler, and then I texted you back. I said, "Well, he just had two pretty interesting shifts on right now that kind of cost them a run and got them into some trouble in the third inning in that game today." Yeah, and so no. it's just like you know what that's going to happen though. Like they're going to teams are going to beat shifts. There's going to be things that you scratch your head with, but. Overall, even if you look at the the way that the bullpen's utilized, you look at the lineup construction, you look at the shifts from time to time, you're going to want to scream. But what I look at is how does the team respond when things aren't going well? And I do think that there's something to be said for this as a manager. Does he get the most out of his team? Do they respond to challenges when their backs are up against the wall? Do they they kind of punch back? And I remember during a show uh, probably about five or six weeks ago, it was right around when they had that really bad Cubs loss when Jason Hayward hit the grand slam off Adam Morgan. I had said to you, you know, this is a very resilient team. They've been resilient to this point. And you kind of like said, well, yeah, that's all fine and well. But at some point, and I agree with you, but really all year that has been the case. You know, every time that they've started to stumble, they've recovered. And, and I don't know if that speaks to the character of the players. Maybe it does a little bit. But I have to give the manager some credit to that end, that it seems like every time this team gets punched in the mouth, they say, screw it, let's go. And they get right back up and, and they end up responding. And, you know, that happened in game one today. And, and really it was Aaron Nola that said, just get on my back and I'll do it, both offensively and defensively tonight. But uh, they responded again after a tough loss. And that's just kind of been the hallmark trait of this team all year. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a problem with his motivational stuff. I really don't. I mean, I do roll. I mean, as a forty-four-year-old man, I do roll my eyes at the whole concept of um, having, uh, you know, disco balls and smoke and everything in the locker room after a victory. I'm like, okay, I mean, you're probably going a little too far. But hey, if these kids respond to it, if that's what the kids want, if that's what twenty-four-year-olds want today, 
who am I to say don't do it, right? I, I think that the I think that the you know when I walk into the Flyers locker room, I think that their music choice is terrible for their celebration. I think it's awful. I go, oh, we got to listen to this nonsense again. It's just really not good. But guess what? They're not playing it for me. They're playing it for them. And that's, if that's what they want to listen to, then that's what they're going to listen to. And then, yeah, more power to you. So if Gabe's doing that well, I'll give him credit for that. I just – my complaints with him all season have been about what happens between the lines, not necessarily what happens in the clubhouse. That's the, that's the difference. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, 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 look, I, I'm not saying I'm coming around on him. I just like the fact that he's kind of chilled out with the pitchers a little bit. He's kind of mellowed out with the way he's handled pitchers a little bit. And I think that that's a positive. And it's probably one of the reasons why they're winning games right now. And, and, and that's, that's good. That's, that's only a good thing. Can, but, let, uh, let me uh, – this is going to be the true indicator of where you're at on Gabe Kapler. Yeah. Uh, the Phillies win 87 games. Okay. They lose the wild card playing game. Yeah. Is he back? If you're the general manager and it's his fate is in your hands, is he back for year two? He has to be. He has to be. I mean, uh, you you exceeded expectations. You got to bring him back. You showed you can win 87 games and make the playoffs. You know, a, a year earlier than probably expected. I mean, how do you not bring him back? Right. That doesn't necessarily. But this is this is the this is where I and when I fight with people about baseball all the time, not just on this podcast, but just in general. I mean, general conversation. The same thing I say all the time. It says you, you can't. You're you're not as good as you as you look sometimes, and you're also not as bad as you look sometimes. But you, you can't sit there and say, "Oh, well, yeah, look at look what he did. He won, got in the playoffs, won 87 games. He's a good manager." Whoa! It's, let's hold the phone for a second. You know, I'm not ready to kill Buck Showalter and say he's a terrible manager because the Orioles are 20, 20 and 62. Right? I mean, Buck Showalter's a pretty good manager. He's got a really good history and track record as a good manager in Major League Baseball and is managing the worst team in baseball. Does that make him a bad manager? He's probably going to lose his job. Does that make him a bad manager? No, it doesn't. Um, and, and just, and, and, you know, you could probably find examples the other way where teams have had really good years and the manager probably wasn't that good of a manager. It's just kind of the nature of the sport, right? So I'm not quick. I'm not going to sit here and kill the guy, but but I'm also not going to praise him through the roof unless he wins a championship. I mean, if he wins a championship, that's it. All bets are It's like the Doug Peterson effect, right? You know, if he wins a championship, you can't criticize the guy. Yeah, he he won you won you a championship. But if he, if he doesn't, you know, you can you're, he's still open to criticism, and that's fine. And that's part of the that's part of the what the way this works. All right. Before we get on to uh, one last thing here, uh, we got we got another we got another before we get to one last. No, we have like five no, before we get to one last things tonight. Just a quick line here. I don't know how much we talked about Aaron Nola. Twelve and two, right? Twelve yeah. wins uh, for a Phillies starting pitcher before the All Star break uh, for the first time since Kurt Schilling in 1999. Uh, wow. So you look at what he did tonight, facing that uh, very tough. Uh, Corey Oswalt, who entered the night with a 7.94 ERA and held the Phillies to all of one hit. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. You know, it's just like, it, yeah, man, whatever. So anyway, that, that's, uh, that wraps up the uh, positive session of the uh, podcast. And uh, let's, uh, let's take it into the final segment, Anthony. What do you have for us? Yeah, one last thing. Um, so I, I'm not going to sit here and criticize our, co- our uh, cohorts on the other podcasts on the Crossing Broad network but Russ and Kyle 
were on the uh, uh, crossing broadcast earlier this week. No, they actually they, they did one today. <laughs> That's right. It was today. I said earlier this week. It was today. This is this. Is how, by the way, I'm having a. I have such a long week. It's ridiculous. Uh, my days are starting at five thirty in the morning and now not ending until right now. It's twelve thirty two. So I it, literally going nineteen straight hours yeah, today. I know and that it's feeling. Be the same, it's going to be the same thing tomorrow. I know that feeling. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, they're talking about. Um, baseball attendance and how it's terrible. It's it's a bad thing. Baseball's in you know in bad shape because of it. And they're not they're not the first ones to do this. So many different people have been saying this. It's kind of become like this narrative nationally about oh baseball's broken and there's a problem with it and we got to fix it. Nobody's going to games until they until good research was done by uh, Brandon uh, Bradford Doolittle at ESPN. And he started off by talking about in his story, which um, uh, you can find on ESPN.com, talking about what the attendance was on 4th of July um, and compared it to uh, previous seasons on the 4th of July. And he pointed out that the 15 games played in the majors drew an average of 34,685 fans. And seven of those games exceeded 40,000 fans. Um, So half of them. And... Two of two of the two of the fifteen games were in Miami and Oakland, which never draw. Right? The 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 Marlins had seventy eight seventy two. <laughs> that is just oh. terrible. And Oakland was wasn't much better. They had fourteen four oh eight, which is sad because the A's are having a pretty darn good year uh, and are fun fun little team to watch. So you take them out of the mix, right? That the numbers are probably even better. Um, and last year it was the Fourth of July average thirty five eight oh five. Um, and there was no but there was no Miami game last year. So the, the really it was only you know a difference of 830 fans from one year to the next. Um, but goes he goes ahead and looks further and shows that in June of 2017, the average attendance was pretty almost identical to what it is this year, that there was only a difference of about 592 fans per game um, in, from one June to the next. Just going to show that it's, it's the time of year kind of thing. Um, and it goes on and further and further to say in the story that um, minor league attendance figures are really doing well to show that the sport of baseball is really alive and well. Um, and that all of this talk that the game is too long, the game is, is boring, there's not enough hitting in the game. And we say it. I mean, I, look, I don't disagree that there's not enough hitting in baseball. I don't think it's too. I don't necessarily think it's too long. It's actually shorter. Games are four minutes shorter this year than they were last year. Um, so I mean, yeah, there are things. Yeah, that you, you are seeing trends in the sport that uh, that I don't particularly like. But I don't think it's killing the sport. And and fans are still showing up. And if you look at it, he goes even further and further. Like really breaks it down. Has some really nice numbers that that uh, show you how the shortfall is not as bad as you'd think. I, I think that we're we're being fed of a bill of goods by whoever who, who whoever's ne- you know telling us the story that baseball's dying. It's not. All right, here I go. Go um, ahead, Bob. I know you were waiting for this. I uh, coach a 12U travel team. Parents pay about twenty five hundred dollars per player uh, for their kids to participate on this team. Uh, I can tell you uh, from experience because I'm on the front lines of it that. Travel baseball uh, amongst youths is at an all-time high. 
Uh, there are more teams than ever. More kids are playing the game. Uh, they are spending a lot of money in terms of not only to play on these travel teams and these elite teams and beyond their Little League town teams, that the money invested in training uh, for baseball is, is exorbitant. Um, it is free-flowing. I would tell you that high school baseball, uh, especially in this area, is thriving. Uh, teams are, you know, school programs are able to field freshman JV varsity teams. I can tell you that from experience. I'm, I'm very familiar with that as well. Uh, I can tell you that the ratings for the college game on ESPN are, are very good. They're very strong. And I would tell you, if you look at Doolittle's article, uh, it, it basically explains the attendance, like you said, for the minor league games is, is strong as well. There has been a little bit of a dip with the major league game. So how's this for a take? The game of baseball is not screwed. It's not headed on a path of destruction. Baseball is fine, is, is my opinion. Uh, I think that Major League Baseball certainly can find a way to tweak the game to make it more consumer-friendly, to be more mindful of this generation of fans, this younger generation of fans that may not have the traditional attention span. I understand that the game moves at a slow pace at times, and it's not to say that baseball is perfect or that uh, it can't be cleaned up to, to make it a better product, but I don't think that baseball is as far off as what the narrative suggests that it is. Uh, I really do think that the game overall is, is still as popular and maybe even certainly on the youth levels more popular than ever, uh, ever. I think that the interest is there. And I think that if baseball can implement some of these corrections, that it's going to be fine. And I think that people are overreacting to attendance numbers. I think that this is a small sample size of attendance numbers. Uh, and yeah, you may look at a five to seven year trend. And I know that Rob Manfred, uh, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, has, has admitted that there are issues with the game. But admitting that there are issues with the game and that there are ways that the game can be improved is not an indictment of the game. And I think that there has been this, this groundswell of, well, the game's broken and what can we do to fix it? I think it's a bullshit narrative, to be honest with you. I think the game's fine. And if we're sitting here another five to eight years from now and we continue to, we continue to see this trend, then that's one thing. But uh, I think that this is a complete overreaction, and I think it's, it's kind of lazy to grasp onto this story at this point. That's, yeah. that's what I think. And I think you're right. And just to give a, a couple of quick little notes from, from, the, from the same story. Um, so we'll look at two good teams, Red Sox and Indians. Their attendance was down in March, April, May. But it has it is better in June than it was last year. So for those cities, it seems likely that the the bad weather early in the year, which we all had bad weather, but really you know the Northeast, Cleveland, you know inc included, which is a little bit Midwest, but Cleveland, um, it's a cold weather city. Boston in the Northeast, those two were obviously hit hard by the weather. But the more important ones is that if you if you look at um, Teams that are not competing, you know, and you knew from preseason that they aren't competing. Um, so uh, if, you, if you say that th uh, there were six teams that had less than a 10% chance of making the playoffs coming into the season, okay? Padres, White Sox, Royals, Orioles, Tigers, and Marlins. Together, their attendance figures make up 72% of the league-wide shortfall. In attendance. Sure, and in 1995, you didn't have general managers or front offices coming out and saying, hey, we're listen, now we're going to yep. rebuild or we're going to kind of shut it down for two or three years. It's going to be rough, 
uh, you're going to need to grin and bear it, but please hang with us. I mean, that wasn't the way that professional sports franchises were run back then. Right. You always sold hope. You always sold the idea that, hey, uh, it's springtime, and, and maybe if everything breaks right, we too can be the 1993 Phillies. And, right. you know, it's a different time and baseball fans are smarter and sports are different. And so these GMs now, they, they don't want to lie to fans and they say, listen, we're not going to be good this year. People aren't going to come out to the park for that. I mean, they may be understanding to a, to a certain extent, but that is going to take a toll on attendance. Yes. And then, and then if you add, so that was 10% chance. If you make it a 15% chance, that's 90% of the shortfall. But here's the best number. If you go, let's just say, the teams that have a 20% chance or worse percent at the beginning of the season to make the playoffs, that makes up for 107% of the shortfall. That's the, that's the, that's the difference. So teams that are have a 21% chance of making the playoffs or better are bringing in more fans. And that's 21% chance, so you're, you're exactly right. You have a little bit of hope. You're gonna still. You're gonna still go to the stadium. You're going to the stadium. And if you don't, if only the teams that you have no hope for, those are the ones that aren't drawing and, and that are bringing the shortfall. And you know but what? Even a and little bit of hope. People are coming. You know what? And, and here's the response to what you just said. And I, I know that anybody that's listening to this that disagrees with that is going to point to the Phillies and say, "Well, wait a minute. You just said the Phillies are 50 and 39, and they're in first place in the National League East, and yet they're in the bottom third of attendance. And this was a city that." Going back to 20, uh, 2008 through 2011 was just absolutely hell-bent on coming to the park. It's different, and it's different because this team sucked for four years, and it's different yep. because they lack marketable players, yep. and it's different because this t- city is just coming off a Super Bowl, and yep. it's coming off a, 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 I would say, an NBA season that was relevant for the first time in half a decade. There are so many different contextual factors that go into this. And the one thing that I've said all along is that if this team gets to August 1st and they are in first place, that stadium is going to fill up. And it's going to fill up at 80, 90 full capacity, you know, 80, 90 percent capacity, full capacity. I've said that from the jump and I maintain that. And what you're seeing in this city and what you're getting from guys like Kyle and Russ, and I understand this. And these guys are sharp guys and they get sports. But what you're seeing is they're taking a, a larger nationwide narrative. And then they're paring it down to the local level, but there are unique contextual factors that go behind this. And if this team kicks ass for the next three weeks, they're going to fill up the stadium. And if they do what they need to do over the offseason, they're going to sell out next year. And it's going to look like 2010, 11, all over, all again. over again. And I'm telling yes. you that. And, and that's, it, that's my belief on this. You don't it, need to limit the amount of, of relief pitchers in a game. You don't need to change the height of the mound. You don't, it's all, that's all bullshit. What it comes down to is if you're competitive and you put a competitive product on the field, people are going to go see it. If a third of the league is going to wave the white flag on April 1st, people aren't going to go see it. It's going to have an adverse impact. And to that end, I'll be really interested to see what the NBA looks like in two or three years from now if it's going to continue to be the Golden State Warriors and maybe one other team that can possibly maneuver their way into a championship if someone gets hurt on that team. What kind of impact is that going to have on the NBA? Because I would imagine that eventually that's going to be an issue. But we'll see. No, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right, and I think it's going to be even before August 1st. Um, Phillies don't come back home until July, July 20th, 20th against yeah. the Padres. And that, that, that series might not excite you, but you know how the, they chase draws, right? I mean, the Dodgers come in right behind that, 
and they all the fans always flock to that stadium to go see Chase. And if the Phillies are a good team on that Monday, which would be the 23rd, I think it is, or maybe the series doesn't start till Tuesday, the 24th. But that week, that's when the, that's when the numbers are going to start to rise. You're going to start to see 40,000 people at Citizens Bank Park. I, I think you're right on with that, and we're going to see it from July 24th through the end of the season. Very good. All right. Well, well what do you got? That, you want you want to close it out for us, or what? I think that's it. I All think right. we did nine. Yeah. An hour twenty eight minutes. This two weeks in a row. We've <laughs> Don't you dare minutes, talk about my sport. <laughs> that's right. How dare you, Russell? How dare you, Kyle? Uh, uh, so with that, uh, please uh, catch uh, it's uh, what Crossing Broad FC with Phil Kaidel and, that's right. and Russell. Uh, that's always fun, and uh, you have it's always soccer in Philadelphia with uh, Crossing Broad writer Kevin Kincaid. And what else do we have? Snow the goalie. Snow the goalie with uh, yourself and Russ as well. Yeah, and don't listen to Crossing Broadcast. <laughs> uh, I, I think we have an episode actually uh, dropping on Wednesday of that, and then I believe that there's going to be a roundtable episode that uh, is to air Friday, but things do change. So, uh, but stay yeah, tuned for that. I, I Make know. sure roundtable round roundtable without me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of that's kind of like the Knights of the Round Roundtable without Sir Lancelot. But that's all right. You guys have fun. Very high praise for yourself. I like. That. <laughs> Anyway, uh, no, just uh, just thanks for tuning. Thanks for tuning into another great episode. Uh, for more Philly stuff as we head into the All Star break and really look at uh, where that team, where the team sits at that time, and and getting ready for the trade deadline, which will be only two short weeks away by the time we come to you next week. So uh, for Bob Wankel at BW Crossing Broad, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo at Ant San Philly, saying see you next week. <laughs>